Good morning, universe. <clears throat> Whoa. Got a little frog in my throat, I guess. It's, it's only uh, 9.56 a.m. I probably should be like the army. I've done more than had my cup of coffee at this point. I haven't even had my cup of coffee. Oh, talk about lazy. Wait, have we been lazy today, Phoebe? Yes. Okay, we've been lazy. Pause. Okay. Since I basically did nothing during that whole pause break, I'm going to pause again. So, if this is a Petri dish, how do these subjects of said experiment gain the wherewithal to know they are the subjects of said experiment? How can we rise above our placement as subjects and become masters of the realm? Do we have to go to a comic book land to make all that happen? That sounded very comic booky. Nope, turns out you don't have to go to a comic book realm because here in reality we just took our dreams to the blue, saw some goats that were golden, wrecking trains that were purple, and I thought, well, with this colorful palette full of crap, why on earth, why on the universe called this one, would I not want to be experiencing this moment right now with this dog called Phoebe? Are we high enough for this, Phoebe? Are we ready to go? Bow wow. All right. Well, <clears throat> Feeling quite plucky after 48 to 72 hours of doldrums. Well, universe, today could be the day that I finally do four episodes in a single day. Or it could be one where I barely get one done and then say, Oh, God, I'm so far behind. Why am I always so far behind? Because <gasps> I never do everything I'm supposed to do. Well, not never, right? Like, I do everything I'm supposed to do when I make cookies. I do everything I'm supposed to do when I go take a shower. I do everything I'm supposed to do when I mix up some Powerade. But, when you look at the Umbrella Corporation side of life, the Resident Evil Part 36, What Have You Done For Me Lately? Well, you look around my room and you can see Resident Evil Part 37... The negligent corporation. I just... It seems to me... Where are you going, bub? It seems to me... You're given this package, right? This human being package. You get all the cool variations that come with it, like... Hey, did you know we can skip? Hey, did you know this body can ride a bicycle? Hey, did you know this body can go on a hang glider? So, you figure out all these awesome things you can do inside the human suit. Hey, do you know this body can have sex? Yeah. Found that out. Do you know this body can hug a dog? Oh, hi, Bubba. And, where are you going? Where are you? Hang on, pause, pause, pause. Here goes the big elephant. Unpause. Okay. The first four minutes of this particular recording, <clears throat> I can't even tell you what went down. 
and it is now 10, what, 06? Uh, yeah, 10.06 on December 8th. And it's not that I'm that high. Although I have smoked quite a bit of weed this morning. Because, honestly, I feel great again. Woke up feeling great. <clears throat> Asked, as I'm falling asleep, if they can fix my back and make me feel better in the morning. And both are there. So, yeah. Um, and it's weird that it seems my downtime experiences physically this past season, say, since September, have all coincided with time off at work. I happen to have four days off. I happen to go down in some sort of uh, ill-equipped-to-get-to-work condition, yet I'm not working, so it turns out not to affect me. I've been lucky with the days that I haven't felt capable of working to have been, in fact, not scheduled to work. And it's happened so much that now I consider it relative pattern for the last three months because I don't work enough for these hiccups to come so uh, to come so conveniently at the time when I need them to happen. But, hey, when you're living right, things go your way. And if you can see how things are going your way, well, then you'll remind yourself that things are going your way. And that'll make even more things go your way. And pretty soon you're on a roller coaster full of everything's going my way. Everything. It's like a roller coaster of me. Okay. So now uh, we're five, almost six minutes into this sucker. And I still don't know what I'm talking about. At least the dog's back from being outside. Okay. So... The Americas. The great mystery that is the Americas. Everything from why were there so many fucking orphans in the Americas, in North America, in the 1800s? Why? And why are there so many megalithic and pyramidic structures in South America? Why do we think Machu Picchu was made by the Incas? Who were the Paracas? Who were the Nazcans? Are you aware that the Paracans are 1,500 years older than the Incas? And that's just, that's going with conventional dating which we know is off. Even in that truncated calendar of events, the 1,500-year gap between the Paracas and the Incas is inexplicable. And the Paracas skulls? Here's the thing. Head-binding? Come on. Okay. Head-binding is the kind of thing you do to your infant because you've seen elongated skull creatures that dazzle you so much you want to turn your kid into one. Now, the thing about head binding, and for anyone who's not aware of what I'm talking about, there are a series of skulls that were found in the Paracas ruins of Peru, Bolivia. I'm not sure exactly where Paracas ruins are, but call it South America, Peru, Bolivia, Argentina region. And among these remains 
are a series of elongated skulls that essentially look like uh, the old Egyptian Cleopatra Akhenaten uh, depictions of people with almost eggheads. Yeah, these skulls are those. And the explanation for these skulls, because there are instances of this tradition being practiced, are that they were head-bound infants who were bored, squeezed when their skull was soft. In other words, you take two boards, you squeeze the skull together, bind it with rope, and leave it in that position until the, what is, is it, uh, what is that skull initially? Collagen? Uh, what's in your knee? Anyway, when that finally turns into actual bone, well then now you've headbound and morphed the shape of your skull. The problem with that is you're only manipulating the shape. You're not doing anything about the actual mm, volume because the Caracas skulls all have volumes that are 140% or more greater than the size of a traditional human brain cavity. So how do you enlarge a head by binding it? I don't think you can. In fact, spoiler alert, there's no fucking way to do it. Here, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you this Tupperware container. And I want you to use this um, warm plate and this other warm plate, plus these zip ties. And I want you to make that Tupperware container now have a volume 150% bigger than the one that it currently has. What do you mean you keep failing and ending up with melted plastic? See, sometimes the obvious is what they don't want anybody to think about. Why are these skulls bigger? Um, because they're not human. Um, because they're not homo sapiens. Okay, so the mysteries in South America are abundant, but give us time, <clears throat> we'll solve them. The cool thing about being human is throw enough of us at a problem and we tend to come up with answers. I mean, we're pretty fucking innovative that way. You tell us that there are words that are bad, you know what we do? fucking figure it out. We work around that. We come up with solutions. We say, F you, bro. That way, we're essentially conveying the intent without the actual message being restricted by the censors of America. Okay, we are wandering. Boy, what combination of weed do we have in me right now? Because it is one that we could call ludicrous illusions. Um... <clears throat> Back to, and what's funny is this whole thing was supposed to be grounded in a very real story. Uh, 
because what I want to talk about today is the old, old, nope, boys and girls gather around the fire, because tonight's tale is one of mm, murderous intrigue, academic backslapping, and a boy genius making good on his promise to dad that, hey papa, if it comes down to it, I'll fix the world. Well, all that happened in what we're going to call Cracking the Maya Code, because that's what Nova called it when I watched their special that taught me most of this shit. So, thanks, Nova! Pause. The following segment, brought to you by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a division of MindThink and GroupThink from the CIA in Washington, D.C., Boston, and New York, Back to you, Dave. All right. Dave's out again. And I'm going to cough. So, <coughs> okay. So, kids, let's start this with. Before Nova. And I know we're all huge fans of Nova. Okay, wait. I'm going to cough again. Hang on. But before Nova, there was a show called In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy. It was basically Spock uh, doing voiceovers about things like the Loch Ness Monster, uh, vampires, uh, the curse of the King Tut's tomb, uh, the uh, ability to uh, to douse for water or whatever that is with that stick. Anyway, and In Search Of was, I believe, a one or two year project. It didn't last long, but it was timed perfectly for me. Because I believe it came out in the years of 77, 76, 77, right around Star Wars. And it was, uh, it was the kind of show that was just boy candy. Because it just gave you one of those mysteries to go get compulsive with. So, <clears throat> and, and back in the day, before internet... What that meant is you would, someone would turn you on to an idea like, uh, like water dousing. You'd never heard of this before. And then you would go to the library to find out more. Well, no. First, you would turn to your local collection of resources, whether that be your school library, which sucked, but it did have the Encyclopedia Britannica. And probably the other encyclopedia, whichever one that other one was, like the World Book or something. Um, so you had the minimal resources. And you probably had something like that at home. I know we had one of the encyclopedias at home. But the point is, you would immediately go running to whatever resources you have to see if you had more information on this already that you could have already gotten to. And then you would take it to the next level, which would be school. And then you would take it to the next level, which would be the community library. Or, God forbid, you live next door to a fortune teller or something where you could go to a mystic. Um, but I didn't have any of those resources at hand. So, to the public library, I would go in Cherry Creek. And Cherry Creek's library was a pretty good resource, especially for kids, because they catered the library to kids in a huge capacity. So, the librarians were really helpful if you wanted to know something about, say, uh, water dousing. 
Is that even the right term for this? Should I be calling it that when I don't even know if it's right? Anyway, and they would walk you through finding the resources that were on hand. And the best thing about them was they would walk through the catalog resources, which meant the main downtown public library, and find any secondary resources that weren't stocked at the Ross Barnum Cherry Creek Library and have them brought to the library for you if you're interested. And over the course of being a 7, 8, 9, 10-year-old precocious little fuck at the library quite often, I got to know a lot of the librarians and got to know their processes. So after a while, I got to just do all that stuff on my own and send myself all kinds of resources about everything, especially the macabre. Because at the age of 9, 10, 11, not only do you go through the dinosaur phase, but you go through the vampire, zombie, werewolf phase, or whatever, the macabre phase. And so each time somebody ignited a new idea for you, it was an opportunity to expand the universe in which you knew the weird. Ripley's Believe It or Not meant you had... You had opportunities as a youth, or I did in my youth, to feel like I was finding knowledge treasures that were mine by going through this resource um, uh, project research, I guess. I guess at one point in my life, maybe I was good at this stuff. But the thirst for learning that hits you at about six, seven, eight, when you realize your autonomy as a thinking entity and what that can mean, that you can literally soak up the knowledge of the universe as quickly as your sponge can take it. I've never lost that thirst. In fact, I would say the greatest thing about being in this stupid human suit is thinking. Arriving at conclusions. Solving problems coming up with solutions to situations that aren't quite maximized, optimized, or or harmonized with the environment in which they exist. Finding the discordant and making it sing. You can do that in your thoughts. Your thoughts are magical. And they exist. They have heft, weight, They have reality. They are not fleeting, wispy, non-existent, was here, now gone, puffs of smoke. No, they are pebbles in the stream of conscious life. And they rearrange and describe the terrain for us in our density reality of 40 space-time, as much as any other magical element does. I think, therefore, I am. Yeah, pretty much. So when I get to think through situations like, man, what what the fuck happened to everything that that was there? South American treasure was enormous. Enormous. Biggest in the world. Is that where all the gold went? Is that what all the gold in Fort Knox and Hitler's vault were? The melted treasure of South America? 
what happened to all the legacy of Peru? Well, I don't know, <clears throat> but I know that if you look at the the uh, writing or the hieroglyphs or whatever you want to call the Mayan uh, symbology, the language that appears to be there, well, there's an interesting story about how we came about knowing the intent of that symbology and what started the ball rolling was the sadistic motherfucker, some friar fuck from the 16th century, I believe, who, upon seeing the Mayan uh, culture, decided they were of the devil and proceeded to thus brutally torture and uh, murder thousands of them. And then forced their language into obscurity, anonymity, into the death knell of that is no longer spoken, written, or tolerated by rule of death. So if the penalty is death, if you continue to use the old English, well, today we're going to start using the old new English. No more old English. New English, because the old English will get you killed. Well, under those kinds of rules, you can understand how a language pretty much disappears. And once again... This is what's so great about the Inquisition or uh, the Conquistadors. No matter how you want to look at it, when white people come to brown people and say, you are the devil, we are going to take all your gold, melt it, and put it in our teeth, and then kill all of you. You have to say, white people suck. But they really suck when they show up as part of the Inquisition or as part of the Spanish Conquistadors. Because then they just destroy cultures entirely. And having destroyed the Mayan culture pretty much entirely, well, this story gets a little kickback from a man named, and I wrote his name down because shit like names matters. Oh, Patty Greer. Go see her Crop Circle movie. You will like it. But if, uh, if this guy, J. Eric Thompson, hadn't been uniquely positioned in World War One in the trenches, no less. I honestly think that's the worst. Well, I don't know enough about ancient warfare to know what they came up with that was the worst of the worst. But if, if you want to know the worst life you could have in 20th century existence, it was trench warfare of World War One. That's it. There's no worse life. That was it. Well, this guy, J. Eric Thompson, was fortunate enough to have gotten that calling he pulled that card and uh, lived through it, which is makes him one of the few. And in what can only be described as one of those twisted fates of re, of 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 karma, his experience in World War his his presence in Germany brought him in front of one of the three original. Uh, uh, Mayan Codex uh, books that was that was, remained after Friar Fuck went through and burned it all down. So Friar Fuck takes the landscape of the Mayan and waste wastes it, wastes it with what fire and brimstone. I don't know what, but 
essentially by being a sadistic motherfucker. He destroys the entire uh, written, cultural, and artistic, and people heritage of the Mayan. They are gone. Thousands, of, if not hundreds of thousands of people were killed by him. Like, he, he's bad. But <clears throat> out of all of the remnants of what was the Mayan culture, three key documents emerge. These are the, one's the Dresden Codex, one's the, I'm not sure the other two, so I'm not going to speak, but they're all essentially hieroglyphic writings, intact, original source material, that are the first gateways to being able to decipher the hieroglyphs that are Mayan uh, writing. Well, <clears throat> so J. Eric Thompson, who's, uh, if I had to guess, a really good guy. And this is what sucks about all this, is that I don't think anybody involved here is anything but well-intended and a good person. But, of course, things get fucked up, and it takes a hundred years to unwind a problem. Well, I guess you could look at it as a 500-year recovery from the actions of somebody so afraid of what they've run into other than what they're used to that they have to torch the landscape and pretend they have exterminated the devil from planet Earth once again. Yeah, I know. Everyone, I, I mean, yeah, I could see myself as everybody, but as the, as, as Friar Fuck, oh, I, I have a hard time knowing what happened to that guy to turn him into such a piece of shit. Okay, but back to our guy, J. Eric Thompson, who J is the letter J, Eric Thompson. So really, his name's Eric. Eric Thompson finds one of these original codexes. Actually, what he finds is a recreation of it, or I don't know if it's, if it's a copy or a print of, of the original Dresden Codex, maybe. It doesn't matter, one of them. And what triggers him as fascinating is that it's been dubbed undecipherable. And this is kind of what gets a whole bunch of people involved in this from the get-go, is the challenge that, what do you mean undecipherable? There's got to be something about it that's fucking decipherable. It's obviously language. And really, it is obviously language. Well, he uh, ends up so enthralled by the challenge itself that he goes to live in Central America with the Mayan people. Like, this dude's a good dude. He lived through World War I trench warfare. He's been through the worst of the worst, and he is, um, he is subdued by the Mayan culture in its current day form, thinking these are the most peaceful, loving, spirited, um, um, soul-filled, uh, cultured people on earth. Like, and, and starts to become blinded by his knowledge of the people personally. Let's just put it that way. He's also one of the very first people who gives a shit about any of this because these codexes have been hidden. He discovers this as remnants of, of a war. I mean, some of this stuff might never have even been uncovered had it not been for the fact that uh, coincidence let certain curious people into positions to find these documents that then led them onto a life of pursuing the, solving the mystery, uh, the mystery of coffee. Okay, back to the story. So, Duke goes to Central America, lives with the Mayans, gets a false impression of the Mayans as nothing but a peaceful, harmonious culture, 
Because it turns out that's not all true. In fact, all of South America in the Middle Ages, as it were over in, well, let's say from the 500s to the 1500s, were pretty brutal. A lot of attacking between, I think, internal uh, uh, divisions of peoples. But that said, Eric Thompson's first thought of the Maya is to see them as, um, as peaceful, as harmonious, and as a collective of cultural uh, tranquility, of which that's probably not all true. On to what he discovers about the Mayan Codex, he actually comes up with some of the uh, intonation, uh, the syllable versus, uh, um, versus letter spelling. Um, if you look at the traditional alphabet that we use to write out anything, there are two things happening at once. There are the letters making the words, and then there are the cooperative characters that help punctuate the, uh, the structure. So things like parentheses, dashes, periods, they're all in there, but they don't mean anything to the larger structure, which is the representation of language. They are the organization of the presentation. And so he starts to, to unfurl some of this, but cannot come up with any way that there is a phonetic representation to the language. And in fact, uh, is so convinced of this that basically his take on this, uh, that, and, and having lived with the Mayan people gives him some credibility that he doesn't deserve. But he says that the symbology of it is what's important. It was a ritual the, it's, it is artistic. There's a lot of flair in the Mayan writing. And, and this turns out to be actually key. But there, there's a lot of, um, of what looks like um, choice, personal choice of presentation by the particular carver of whatever it is that you're looking at. In other words, a lot of it looks to be kind of random. Because it is. Well... So, he, he gets far enough into the randomness component of Mayan structure to convince people that there is nothing here but allegory and symbology for connecting with their gods or greater uh, beings. And is convinced of this for most of his life. Persuasively convinced because he dominates the field. He's the dude who you go to to talk about Mayan codexes. So... When a young Russian uh, architect uh, student named Tatiana Proskaryakov, Proskaryakov, um, what is that? Proskaryakov, Proskaryakov, yes. When this Tatiana uh, graduates Princeton in the midst of the Great Depression in the 30s, early 30s, can't get a job as an architect, takes work, as a uh, as a an archaeological surveying drawing uh, person, whatever she goes and does draw survey drawings of archaeological dig sites. Well, this gets her down to Central America and in front of the Mayan codexes. She starts working on Mayan sites, and in seeing the actual source material, the carvings in the structures themselves, starts to put together. Uh, 
a sequence of of logical steps as to what is being presented. And she does this because she starts to envision the ruins as if they were the vibrant operating day-to-day facilities that they truly were. And instead of seeing then a whole bunch of uh, stones knocked down and scattered about, she starts to imagine, well, what the fuck was, how was it all assembled? And her ability to do this is amazing. It's like boy genius who finishes the story because her contribution to the entire process is to finally realize that the structure that's being presented inside of the Mayan Codex is, in fact, a direct lineage of counting history. There is there is an underbelly of historical significance to the monuments that are strewn about because when organized correctly, which she imagines and and manages to to prove exists, when she shows that there is a direct connection to all these uh, megalithic stones that stand in front of temples, that they actually represent the ruler's lineage across time, and that it goes across from ruler to ruler to ruler? Well, even old Princeton dude, or wherever he was, J. Eric Thompson, had to say, holy shit, yeah, you're right. You're right, there is something here. And so she starts the ball rolling. And frankly, contributes as much to this as anybody. But the next guy, and this is where Jay Eric Thompson sucks. But he sucks because he was in World War I, and as a result of that, thinks communists are evil. Of course he does. But because communists are evil, this guy Yuri Valentinovich Korinasov? Kor- Korinasov? Wait, Konorasov? Konorasov. Okay, this guy is a linguist out of Russia. And he has no connection to any of this stuff. What he does is in World War II, in the middle of Dresden, he picks up an original codex. I'm not sure which one it is, but he literally finds a codex on the floor of the Library of Congress, whatever that is in Germany, and as if through karmic divine intervention... This motherfucking codex, one of three in the world, survives the bombing and is in such a, an obviously uh, exposed position that this soldier from Russia finds it and brings it home and manages to, from a completely isolated perspective of just a linguist, not somebody who's worked with ancient symbology, manages to decipher some very key points of what would become the actual breakdown of the language. He starts to understand how certain symbols that have been misinterpreted by J. Eric Thompson as representing, say, the cardinal directions of why they exist in the in the phonetics they do, he figures out that what has what J. Eric Thompson had originally said has no sequence, definitely has sequence. In fact he shows sequence not just in directions, but across a whole bunch of other ways that these phonetic symbols initially are being presented to have meaning with the next symbol. In other words, this isn't coincidence. There is something connecting these symbols to each other. So he begins to break down the logic of the language by deciphering it 
almost reverse engineering it from a linguist point of view of what do all these symbols have to mean because there are this many of them used in this combination. Nobody had done this before. So when he presents his work to the world, well, he's scoffed at by Jarek Thompson. Why? Well, because he's from behind the Iron Curtain. Literally. I know. Bias, right? Fucking bias. But Thompson's so influential in the field, he basically... Well, he, there are a couple of inconsistencies in what uh, Knorosov's uh, presentation has. And instead of seeing all of the connections that are being proven, uh, Thompson just jumps on the couple of fallacies and discards the entire body of work. As we're prone to do. And then <clears throat> the next guy who comes in to help. Uh, well... I mean, that, that's not fair. This guy is... Okay. At this point, Thompson is, is losing control of the, uh, of the narrative because more and more people are getting involved and more and more uh, connections are being made. The frustrating part is, even though uh, Konorosov has shown that there are, in fact, language syllables being uh, represented here, they really, out of some 800-something symbols, they figured out 30. I mean, talk about, yeah, these 30 work, but what the fuck's with the other 770? I mean, at some point, you have to think, oh, God, are we just chasing the wrong goddamn tail? And um, and more and more work's being done by, uh, by a variety of, of people getting interested in the field. And there are connections being made structurally and through symbology and through guttural sound language. In other words, letters versus pictures, uh, the entire Chinese uh, structure of, or of, of writing is based on having one word for, or one symbol for every concept, every word has its own symbol. Oh my God, are you kidding me? Um, whereas... In English, you have 26 letters and various punctuation and other complementary symbology that allow you to create all of the words necessary to speak the language. So if you see uh, something written with, say, somewhere between 20 and 40 uh, repeating characters, you can assume that's an alphabet. If you see something written with somewhere between, say, uh, 75 and 110 characters, you can assume those are for sounds like blah, cla, sla. Whatever. And if you see something written with 800 to 10,000 symbols, well, you can assume that that's for word representation for everything that needs to be spoken. The problem is, with only 800 symbols in the Mayan Codex, that's not enough. And so, <clears throat> how do you get from only finding the connection between 30 of these to solving the whole puzzle? Well, it takes a boy genius who happens to be the son of a goddamn Mayan archaeologist. No shit. He wins, uh, what's the genius award? The, the, uh, uh, I'll think of it if I don't think about it. Um, anyway, he wins the, the, the scholarship that is designed for actually represent, finding the true, uh, uh, mental giants among us. 
he wins this thing at the age of 18, making him the youngest recipient of the award ever. The, the MacArthur. Wait, MacArthur? Shit. That's probably wrong. Anyway, after winning this award, uh, he goes on to crack the Mayan Codex. But he had come to understand the Mayan Codex by following his father across digs through the Yucatan Peninsula. Um, and his name, did I write his name down? That's going to be awful if I didn't. His name is going to have to come on the next podcast. Oh, maybe I should go find out. Uh, well, his last name was Stuart, because I remember that from his dad. Um, <clears throat> anyway, this kid uh, figures out, and how smart is this? It's such a simple idea, but it's so fucking smart. Figures out that the artistic flourish that's represented in... Mayan Codex is sort of a dealer's choice way of presenting the same sound. In other words, the way they say by has seven different symbols. He started to connect across the symbols in different writing presentations that they had to be representing the same concept. And it was the breakthrough that solved the entire codex. That there's a substitution going on here where a little bit of flair is permitted by the scribe at hand. In other words, just because you're the one putting down the message, it's not up to you to be a dot matrix printer. No. You're part of the artistic statement in play. You get to make your statement about what's seen through the artistic flair of your documentation. So, the way I choose to write Baikun, my Bai is going to be known because of my Kun, but how I present my Bai is up to me. You'll know it's Baikun because of the connection I'm making to Kun in the context of what I'm presenting, but I get the flair of making my Bai perhaps be a human head, perhaps be a, a, a monkey head, or perhaps be a, 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 a potato. I mean, it's such a simple addition to the rule structure of what was already known. But seeing that took 500 years. And somebody whose life literally was dedicated to this problem from the get-go and happens to be one of the smartest people on the planet. In some ways, you have to think, okay, Mr. Young Stewart, you were obviously put here to help us figure this out. Too much of your life, coincidentally, walked right into being in position to contribute majorly, to a problem that was stalled out entirely. Just like Tatiana gets an architecture degree at a time when there's no architecture job to be had. And as a draft draftswoman, ends up in a career completely unknown to her at the time of her graduation from architecture school, and yet fundamentally changes the direction of that entire discipline. And the only real stopping point here, this J. Eric Thompson guy, 
Well, you feel for him. You feel that he thought he knew what he was talking about because he couldn't solve the problem. He wasn't smart enough. And so having given up on himself, he knew that the only way to save face academically and professionally was to stand by the opinion that this is unsolvable. There is no context here. There is nothing but symbolic what? The old default to, well, this building must have been a temple. Oh, that building? Well, that building must have been a temple too. And that building, well, that building was either where they buried their dead or it was a temple three. (sighs) You know, I love how people who are guessing, which essentially the entire field of anthropology is one large guess, can tell other people that their guesses can't be right because my guess says your guess is bullshit. I guess. So we know about giants. We now know what the Mayans were saying. We know about aliens. What don't we know? What don't we know? Seems like we don't know a lot. But the fact that we can get in our own way so easily, that we can truncate the process of knowledge growth just by personal bias, earned personal bias, sort of makes you wonder if that's not part of the whole discombobulation formula. If old J. Eric Thompson hadn't come to hate the communists from the propaganda and experiences that World War I delivered, well, might Yuri Valentinovich Knorosov and his linguist connections have made the entire discovery of Mayan language translation available in the 60s instead of the 90s? Do those 30 years matter? And when he gets overlooked, is it then absolutely necessary for young, we'll call him Junior Stewart, and his big brain of figuring out hieroglyphics show up on Dad's doorstep to say, take me to Central America so I can solve this one for everybody? Life finds a way. But somehow, I think knowledge and truth, they may even find a bigger way. <laughs>